It's the 29th of July and welcome to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. This is a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. We broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern Time, 11.30 Central Time, every Wednesday from the first week of May to the first week of September. We have certified crop advisor credits available for today's episode. So if you are a certified crop advisor, you can enter your name and email in the chat box, uh, and we will email you that special QR code that you need to get those credits. My name is Ben Phillips uh, from Michigan State University, and I'll be one of your hosts today. My co-host today is Dennis Van Dyke from the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs. And Mike Reinke, also from MSU, is our Zoom engineer. All right, Dennis, what are we doing today? Well, it's sweet corn season, so let's talk about sweet corn pests. Uh, we have two guests today, Celeste Welty of the University, or the Ohio State University, of course, the Ohio State University, Laura Ingwell of Purdue University. Welcome. Uh, Celeste has worked as a fruit and vegetable entomologist for 33 years at OSU, uh, based out of Columbus, Ohio. Laura Ingwell is a new vegetable entomology professor at Purdue, and has been keeping tabs on the corn eworm trapping network there. Uh, so we'd like our listeners to ask Celeste and Laura questions about using the question and answer box uh, if you're on Zoom. Uh, you can upvote your favorites if you're also on Zoom. Uh, they will tackle these questions at the back half of the show. So with that, let's, let's get into it. Um, I'm <laughs> admittedly not a sweet corn expert, but I have been known to enjoy a cobble of sweet corn from time to time. And me, along with others, don't enjoy finding worms in their sweet corn generally. So what kind of worms, uh, I'll ask uh, Laura to start, what kind of worms are out there and when would growers see them? Uh, so one of the most predominant worms that you find in the ears when you peel them open is what we call corn earworm or Helicoverpazia. Um, this is a particularly problematic pest because like I mentioned, the adult moths lay their eggs on the developing silk and that caterpillar then crawls down the silk into the developing ear where it's protected for most of its life. Um, developing and consuming those delicious kernels that we all like to eat. Um, so this pest is present throughout the season, um, beginning probably late April, early May, depending on where you are. Um, there are multiple generations, um, and the pressure in sweet corn itself is um, dependent on a lot of environmental factors, having to do with how much other field corn may be in the area, um, and, and what the resource base looks like for those moths in terms of um, how problematic this pest can be. All right, uh, Celeste, are there other worms to be worried about in the corn ears? Well, uh, can I just um, maybe make a few more comments about your worm? As yeah. Laura mentioned, it can be present for the entire season, but I think um, what most experienced growers always see is that there tend to be very, very few of them during May and June and even July. And then usually right around mid-August, we get a huge, huge increase um, in the moths that are, they basically are blowing up from, from down south in the southern U.S., the Gulf of Mexico. So that's why I think this program today is timely because it's sort of just before, you know, we um, are probably seeing very few up until now. I, need, I know at least in Ohio, in Ohio, most of our trapping locations have been sort of low, but we're anticipating a, a big surge sometime in about in the next few weeks. Um, 
So that is, um, you know, it's a huge, huge problem all through August. And if you go past Labor Day into September, you know, it's a really major problem to deal with. But the other three worms are, um, there are three other worms we, we always worry about. Uh, if earworm is, usually if earworm is present, it drives the system. But European corn borer is an interesting one that it is far less common um, the last 10 years or so than it used to be. But it is still present, you know, both a first generation, it's a native, I mean, a local insect. So we know it's always around in June for one generation. And then usually we don't see it in July. And then it has another generation in August. But for either of those generations, in most locations, it's now much, much uh, lower. It's just fewer of the pests out there. Um, but we still pick it up in our trials. So I think it is still something to be aware of, even though it's not nearly as bad as it used to be. Uh, another one is fall armyworm. We have a lot of years where we just have no fall armyworm at all. And then other years, fall armyworm can just be devastating, not just to sweet corn, but also in um, peppers and tomatoes. Um, so it's a really good one to, to have a trap for because, you know, if you catch it in that, the years when it has shown up, you, it's really good to be aware of because it is extremely difficult to control. So are there I, like, are there like um, particular months where that's present? Like you had mentioned corn earworm, mainly in August problem, mm -hmm. uh, corn borer, June and August. How about fall armyworm? Yeah, well, fall, again, it's another migratory one. So in a way, we never know. Uh, I have seen it as early as June, occasionally in July. But usually, I'd say in years when it shows up, it's usually right around the 1st of August. We actually just picked some up this past week um, in some of our traps. Um, and, and it can be very, very bad in the month of September. And again, I know it often takes our tomato growers by surprise because they're just, they're not used to, to thinking about it. But it is one, if you're really going to have a comprehensive pest management program, you should just be aware of fall armyworm because it will occasionally, um, it can wipe you out. And then the fourth one, the new kid on the block is the Western bean cutworm. And I know we were chatting a little while ago, it's still um, not throughout our region, like in the state of Ohio, uh, we have some pockets in northwestern Ohio that it's it's pretty significant and it's starting to creep into northeast Ohio. Most of the whole southern half of the state, we just don't have it at all. Um, just barely any detection. I think up in Michigan, I think it is more common. And um, so we do why we have to worry about that in terms of timing, it's right during the month of July, right when we're between generations of corn borer and the corn earworm hasn't come in yet. Like usually the month of July is the easiest time to grow corn with no worms, but that is the time when Western bean can come in. So again, it, so how much you care about it depends a lot on exactly where you are. Um, but just be wary, even if it hasn't hit your area yet, you might be seeing it sometime in the next couple of years. So it sounds like that's non-migratory. It, where, it, where it is well, now is basically where it would spread from slowly. Yeah, well, where it came, I guess for years and years, it was out in Nebraska or somewhere way out there in the West. It was a well-established, I believe, native species out West. It's called the Western bean cutworm. But then all, we don't really know why. All of a sudden it started uh, shifting. Like we don't consider it migratory. Migratory, we usually mean every year. I mean, once we have it, it seems to overwinter here. It's now established, but it's just slowly spreading from West to East. Hmm. That's interesting. So it sounds like with all these pests, you could either wait until you find them in the ear to know that they're there, uh, or perhaps uh, the better choice might be to try to find them before they've entered the ear. And I, and I know one way you can do that is through trapping. Um, so I'd like to ask Laura a little bit about trapping of some of these pests. Laura, I, I understand you 
you run a trapping network in Purdue for corn earworm. Can you talk about that? Uh, talk about that for a sec? Yeah. So for a lot of these kids, pests, I think that we definitely want to try to detect them before they get in the ear, right? Because then they're covered up by those thick leaves and they're really hard uh, to control. So what we use for corn earworm trapping is um, what we call a heart stack trap, but it's a giant metal cone trap with a catching container on the top that we put out in the field. Um, the trap's about four or five feet off the ground is where the cone starts. And in there we place a pheromone lure. So this is a little like piece of uh, rubber plastic material that's infused with the smell of the female moth. So as the moths are uh, active at night, flying around looking for a mate, we're attracting males into that trap. So the trap gives us an idea of the activity and the population in the area. Although we have to be aware of the fact that we are catching males, not females. And the females are the ones laying the eggs but it can help inform decisions about what the population and pressure looks like in your area and when they're actively flying and searching for mates. So you can time your application shortly thereafter. So you know that's when the eggs are gonna be laid on the fresh silk and when you really need to get that product down on the plant. So when the eggs hatch, they come into contact before they're protected in the ear. So we um, have established this trapping network mostly across the Purdue Agriculture Centers in Indiana um, and with a few farmer collaborators. So the network that we manage is found on our vegetable extension website. Um, we are currently trapping at nine locations. Most of those are in sweet corn. However, we have added some traps in our hemp um, with some collaborating hemp growers and some of the hemp on our research farm because um, as we are learning corn earworm is a particularly damaging pest in the production of CBD hemp as well. So you can see that information in the trapping network. Um, and does it work for timing sprays? Yeah, I, I think it works. You know, I'm curious to hear what Celeste has to say. Um, we have some growers who stick with the thresholds that we recommend from the trapping network, and we have others who just basically use it as a detection tool. And as soon as they start catching them, they start treating their crop regardless of the number. But what More we like recommend- a, a calendar spray at that point? Yeah, pretty much. It becomes mm -hmm. a calendar spray at that point, uh, a timed with the development of the corn. What we, what we recommend is looking at those catches and finding the one closest to your location. So we have them throughout various counties, but north to south through Indiana. So find the one closest to you. And early, um, there's a few different variables that impact when you should spray. But if it's early in the season and there isn't what we call dent corn or field corn around that's soaking, um, then our threshold is one moth per night. Because the only resource around at that time for those females to lay eggs is in the sweet corn. Mm -hmm. As we move later into the season and we have more dent corn available or there's more resources for those moths to be laying their eggs on, that threshold increases to 10 moths per night. And then once you get back into the later season or late production, when the field corn silks have dried up, and again, there's less resource, but this is where we think hemp is going to play a role as well, um, and we don't really know crop use between sweet corn and hemp, but there is overlap there with the flowering time. Um, mm -hmm. But that threshold then drops back down to one moth per night. 
Mm -hmm. So you have to, so we recommend making your spray based on the developmental stage of the corn, in addition to the resource base in the environment and the number of moths caught in those traps. Yeah, last, last year, I think we had a, in Michigan, a very full appreciation of what field corn does for sweet corn growers in when 10,000 or more acres was not planted because it was too wet and all that was around was sweet corn. It was insanity how much earworm pressure there was. Um, so Celeste, I think uh, Ohio also has a trapping network and um, are, you, are you trapping some of those other pests? Are they trappable as well on sweet corn? Yeah, uh, by far corn earworm is the best one, especially if you're a beginner and you've never done any urine trapping, really a good one to start with is corn earworm. Um, but we do have a few locations uh, where we trap European corn borer and a few with fall armyworm and a few with Western bean cutworm. The, the rules, the decision rules we have for those other three pests are not as refined as our decision rules for corn earworm, but still the, the basic um, fact they tell you, you know, what, whether that pest is active or not, um, which is important to know. Okay. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, insecticides a little bit later, but one, there are a couple of approaches. Oh, you can tr you can trap and you can treat, or you can not trap and you can treat. Um, um, you can also you can also use corn that is a variety that can that has a pesticide in it already. Those BT varieties um, that come from the field corn industry, basically, it's kind of like an offshoot. So, in your experience, Celeste, um, do those work well? Have they worked before? Are they working now? Um, well. There are, that's, you can't just give a, a general answer for those. That's <laughs> that um, there are, we, we do have quite a few growers who are, are using it in certain situations and they're finding it extremely useful. Um, but there are three different sort of uh, categories of the, the transgenic or the BT sweet corn. Um, there's the oldest one that was the attribute series. And then there's the performance series um, from Seminus. And then there's the attribute two, the newer attribute. And um, unfortunately, the, I guess the good news is we have the attribute too, because right now it's the only one that's working really well. But there's just been a big change. The uh, performance series and the older attributes previously had worked extremely well and they've broken down. Um, so as you know, like their trials, um, you had one in Michigan, we had one in Ohio. And there was one in Indiana where all of us are, are sort of testing these side by side. And they're I guess the older ones are still better than... Um, no BT, but they're just, they're no longer a standalone treatment. Whereas the newest, this attribute two, you know, still looks great for now. We don't know how many years it'll last. We don't, might only get a few years out of it uh, because basically the same general mechanism where pests become resistant to an insecticide that's sprayed, they're becoming resistant to this genetic trait. So, um, so it does work. The difference in the older ones, even the older attributes, when they first came out, they, even when they were at the very best, they did an excellent job with European corn borer. They were only so-so with corn earworm. Um, okay. But now then when the performance series came out, it was, it was good against all the pests, both above ground and below ground, some of the rootworms. Um, and then the attribute two um, added Western bean cutworm as a, uh, a target pest, whereas the other BTs didn't get Western bean cutworm. Um, there's also some very important herbicide tolerances associated with each one in addition to the insect tolerance. So yeah, I would say they, they definitely work. Um, you know, the, only, the issue there, as many growers know, is it's public acceptance. I think the growers should absolutely love them because they make your life easier and, you know, they get very good control. 
It's just the public is uh, some, somewhat afraid of the transgenics because they don't really understand genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. So I, did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like um, for corn earworm, some, some of them are, are, are losing their footing except for attribute two, which has that, that newer BT protein. I think it's called VIP3A. Mm -hmm. um, well, it actually it has two genes. It has the VIP3A and the CRY1AB. Right, so and the CRY1AB is the one that seems to be fumbling yep. a little bit with corn earworm. So right. the VIP3A is what's carrying that um, for corn earworm. Um, yeah, and I, get, I have growers that like to use these varieties, um, and sometimes I get the question of where is it – I do pay more for this, and then if it doesn't work, I still have to spray an insecticide. So I'm, at, I'm throwing good money on top of what I thought was good money. It might not be good money um, if it's not actually helping with the pest. But then there's this added wrinkle with the herbicide tolerance of those varieties. And I think maybe that's actually what some of these growers like even better, is that they can just spray Roundup over it or Liberty and just say, we're good. And then I'll just spray it with an insecticide as I would any other standard variety. Um, does that make sense to you? Do you feel like that is uh, on the level with what makes that variety de desirable? that herbicide tolerance? Uh, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Um, mm -hmm. You do have to be a little bit careful, like, you know, the two different, like either go with all attributes or all performance because, you know, they have different um, profiles yeah. for what they can take. Um, and, but I think um, um, the other important thing is back to Laura and, and the mention of the traps. Well, the question is, do you need supplemental sprays or not? If we wanted to touch on that. Back with the older, um, the attribute and even the performance when it first came out, we generally found it did, they did quite well on their own, but they really did best with some supplemental sprays. And the, the, the big issue, there were a lot of trials done about are those supplemental sprays, should they be early or should they be late? And I know a lot of people recommended they should be late, like at the tail end of silking, but in our trials, we usually found improved control when those supplemental sprays were more at the beginning of silking. Um, but okay. with the newest ones, with these attribute twos, basically they did superb without any supplemental sprays at all. Um, it's just, it's such strong. And we had extremely heavy pest pressure last year and I just couldn't believe how well the um, attribute two handled it. So. Great. Sounds like it's a natural. Yeah. So just if people knew, like if they were thinking in terms of supplemental sprays, thinking of the older BTs, they might really feel they need to, but it sort of has changed with the newer one. So that, that'll dovetail well into Dennis's uh, question about. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start talking about the sprays a little bit. Um, so let's assume you might, you know, you're not using a BT variety or you have started to trap insects or above threshold, or you found some worms in the ears. Uh, what are the best insecticides to spray in organic or conventional systems? Laura, maybe we'll start with you. We'll maybe talk about corn earworm to start. Yeah, so with corn earworm, you know, for years and years, pyrethroids were doing a fairly good job, um, but we have seen resistance develop and the efficacy of that product break down. Um, so right now, we are seeing the best control in the trials that we're conducting here um, with Radiant and Corrigin. So Corrigin is, I think, the leader of that. Um, carrying the control. Um, there are limits to how much of that you can put on the crop in a single season. So uh, when we're doing our efficacy trials, we are typically making five applications um, during the soaking period on that crop. So we can use Corrigin for the first three of those applications, then we've reached the maximum for the season and we switch over to Radiant. Um, this year we're looking at incorporating a virus, Helicovax product, um, into those sprays. 
the spray cycle to see if we can reduce the number of sprays, um, but still keep that insect under control. So that's something that um, we could watch for and see if that works to integrate either as a replacement of some of those corrigin sprays or um, to recover some of the activity with pyrethroids is what we're looking at. Oh, Laura, do, you, do you remember the rate of corrigin that you're using recently in your trial? Um, the, it's close to the high rate, I think around five, but uh, if you give me one second, I can tell you. In our most recent trials, we were using four, but I think we have gone three and five, and that's sort of a whole debate about um, what, what rate when it's such an expensive product. Yeah, so this year in the trial I'm running, we are applying four fluid ounces per acre of the Corrigin, um, and then the Radiant is 4.5. So Celeste, maybe I'll ask you, do you have anything to add on corn earworm, or what about the other, um, yeah, well, other worm pests out there? Here's, I guess just first a, a comment about the resistance. It's It's been this sort of mushy subject that, yes, for sure the pyrethroids don't work as well as they used to. But we sort of expected it would be a steady, you know, they would just keep getting worse and worse and worse, never get better. But instead, with the trials over a number of years, it's still, it sort of goes up and down and up and down. And basically, our experience has been that if we, we occasionally have years with quite light pest pressure, like our traps just are not showing, they, you know, they get a surge, but it's just more like double digit numbers instead of triple digit. And what we've found in those years, actually, the pyrethroids are working fine if you use them at the maximum rate. And then the particular product that does seem to be stronger than the others is Hero, which is a, a premix of two different types of pyrethroids. Um, so I think if I were a grower, I would probably always have some Hero in hand. And then I'd see if it's, or if it's earlier in the season and the earworms haven't shown up, or if the earworms do show up, but in really low numbers, I think you could, you know, uh, you could at least try it. And I think it would probably do well at the high rate. But yeah. in your... Mm -hmm. I was going to say, Celeste, we do, I do have some growers here in Indiana who still rely on pyrethroids and are getting good control, especially in their early corn. Um, one grower in particular still uses Warrior, and it's working well for him, so I think it is kind of variable. I'll echo that. A lot of the growers I work with in Michigan are, are pyrethroids uh, users, and that's basically it. Yeah, but then I, I could say that um, when we have uh, extremely high pest pressure and usually we plan our trials so that they happen, you know, right during really high pest pressure. Um, the warrior, you know, a straight program of warrior can just look terrible. You know, we definitely mm -hmm. have seen it, it looking awful. So I really think it would be wise to have one of the, the newer products. Again, we've used mainly Corrigin and Radiant. The other one, there's a, usually I'm not enthused about premixes, but there is the premix product called Besiege. It is a, a premix of basically um, the same ingredient that's in Corrigin, but plus a pyrethroid. And the one time we like that is at the beginning of the silking period, if you have beetles. So if you have the rootworm beetles or Japanese beetles clipping the silks, um, and Corrigin doesn't touch those beetles. So Besiege is a nice, it used to be called Bullium um, Flexi, or oh, Bullium, really? Bullium, but um, uh, no, it was called Bullium Express. But anyway, it's now called Besiege. And I do think that is useful. Um, other than that, we did test a product called um, Blackhawk. It is basically, it's spinosad, so it's chemically related to Radiant. Um, it's only labeled on a few crops, and it usually did almost as well as Radiant, not quite as good as Radiant, but it is one other option. Then for our organic growers, really, I think the only product that I know of that is really doing a pretty decent job is Intrust, which is spinosad. Um, again, we recommend all the timing of sprays, all that stuff, the same recommendations as for our conventional growers. 
but just with a different product of interest. How about organic, which seems like one of the main other organic insecticides? I'm not a fan of organic. Okay. Do your recommendations change drastically versus early season versus late season uh, corn celeste? Yeah, so I think to me, there are two main decisions that a, a grower has to make about spraying. One is when is the first spray, which I think is a really difficult decision. And then how often to spray. So, you know, the reason it's, a, well, so for when to make the first spray, part of the hard part is, you know, what percent silk do you see? In any given planting, it's sort of, you know, you might have one row that has all silks and the next row doesn't have any silk. So you got to just take the average. But generally, I think when you make that first spray depends on the pest pressure. So again, back to the traps. We think the traps are really important of saying, are you, you know, high pressure or low pressure? If you're low pressure, you can wait until most of the plants have silk. Like, say 75% of the plants have silk, that's a good time for your first spray. Um, but if you have really, really heavy corn earworm pressure and you wait until 75% of the plants have silk, you probably already have an infestation going. So we really recommend you start more like somewhere in that 25% of the plants have silk, which you know it might seem crazy to spray that early, but it's those earliest silks are the ones where all the action is, all those eggs are being laid. Um, so that's one decision is when to make the first spray. And I think that's the harder decision. Then you just have to decide how often to spray. So that's where, um, generally a pretty safe, again, it depends on the pest pressure and your traps, but a pretty safe interval in late summer is twice a week, every three days, twice a week. Um, there are times of the year early in the summer, often once a week is enough, but once you get into heavy pressure twice a week. Um, so we still we use a, a threshold rule that was based that was developed on the East Coast that seems to work pretty well, where it ranges anywhere from two, three, four, five days. But in general, we usually end up on a three-day schedule, and that works quite well during the first and second week of silking. Now, once you get into that third week of silking, you can taper off a bit and not be as aggressive. And then that's where that whole thing, like Laura mentioned, about is the what's going on with the field corn. Because if it's late in the year and there's no other susceptible crops nearby, even when you're in late and the silks are getting brown and dry, they'll still get eggs laid on them. Um, but if you're at a time of year, like right now, there's a lot of field corn, um, then I think that third week you can probably get away with, with less spraying. That's great. Yep. The one other product I didn't mention, sometimes if you sort of run out, if you're doing a pretty tight uh, schedule and you've run out of products, we still use a really old product, Lanate. Lanate can, mm -hmm. uh, it's not as strong as the other products, um, but we often use it like if we need a sixth or a seventh spray, we put in Lanate at the end of the program. I'll just add one observation an organic grower gave to me this year about last year when the earworm pressure was so high. And I, I hardly know any organic sweet corn growers. I just don't think they can ask for the price that, um, that they really need for that crop when everyone else is growing sweet corn for much cheaper. But and you know, I do know a couple people who do it and they had great success with Entrust last year. And um, they, I guess they spaced their corn out on plastic beds, which is another thing I don't see very often, but plenty of walking space between the rows. And then they use one of those steel backpack foggers and um, just blasted the silks um, with that. And that's how they did it. They said they had very happy, he was very happy with what that did for him. Actually, I just thought of one thing about Entrust that I did not check. Um, we should check on this. I know Entrust on most crops, you're only allowed to use it twice, and then you're required to alternate with something else before you go back and use it two more times. 
I'm not sure if that applies to sweet corn, it probably does. So that's a case where you really do need a rotation partner. Um, that's often where people do use Pyganic because it's one of the few things out there. Um, another one on some crops, um, Grandivo is uh, used, but again, I, I, I can't remember if it's you, if it uh, would get corn earworm. Oh, that's good to look, well, I'll look into that. I didn't ask him about that. Maybe I should have, maybe I shouldn't have, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it looks like we have some great uh, questions in the Q&A portion. So why don't we wrap up this, uh, uh, this part of the interview? And thank you very much for joining us, Celeste and Laura. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Uh, ben, what's coming up next week? Okay, thanks, Dennis. Yeah, stick around for the Q&A. We got a full load there. On tap for next week is cleaning and sanitizing post-harvest equipment. And we're going to have some food safety scientists on that call. Uh, you can be here at the same place at the same time, 1230 Eastern time, 1130 Central. And you can email questions ahead of time to greatlakesvegwg at gmail.com. This production is supported by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. And today's episode is brought to you by Bobby's Cobby Lobby Sweet Corn Emporium. Yes, you heard that right. Uh, they've got a sale like you wouldn't believe right now for... Um, that you and the missus really can't, uh, can't avoid to pass up. Did I say missus? Um, yes, I did. I meant to say fishes. You and the fishes can't pass it up. Yet this week only, and perhaps many more, they are offering an extra special run of multi-purpose fishing corn, and it's going for $2 a dozen, half of what competitors will sell you for a single-purpose sweet corn. What makes it multi-purpose fishing corn, you ask? Each and every ear of their delicious sweet corn comes blessed with at least one fat, juicy worm. I've got an ear right here, big, beautiful thing. Let's open it up. Count them. One, two, three worms for your favorite fish friends. They come in several mouth-watering colors. Green Bream, Rosie the River to Red, and Bassmaster Brown. They've eaten nothing but sweet corn their whole lives, concentrating the sweetness. Put these on a hook and the fish will impale themselves willingly for a taste. And they've left 80 to 90% of the ear for you. Eat it raw, no one saw. When you're done snacking, each and every year comes pre-wrapped with nature's very finest toilet paper. It's plush, it's lush, and I know you're running out of the stuff that you hoarded in March. Every piece of this fabulous product is biodegradable, zero waste, and perfect for a backwoods adventure to your favorite fishing hole. And it all costs $2 a dozen with a 13th ear for free. Don't settle for single-purpose sweet corn. Come on down to Bobby's Cobby Lobby and Sweet Corn Emporium for this deal of the summer. Okay. Yeah, you guys should check that out. Sounds promising. So we're moving on to the Q&A now. We've got a full load. And um, Dennis, you and I, how about we swap between asking the questions? I'll start off with the first one that got upvoted. Um, in northern regions where we assume that populations of corn earworm, I think, uh, are migratory, does resistance management matter? Um, the, the asker of the question doesn't understand how source populations down south um, uh, work into this. And if our insecticide selected populations that are here, because we're applying insecticides, do they go back down south and then reinforce this? resistance um, or are we just like a sink for these pests that come up here and so our resistance management wouldn't matter so much. I, 
I'll jump in. I think we're a big sink. And um, I think the reason the resistance is so serious is because we think we have it bad up here. It is way worse down south. Like where they have to spray in Georgia, they spray their sweet corn every day. They can't spray every three days. So would you say, Laura? Wow, that, that is intense. But yeah, I agree that we're definitely a sink. Although there is some question we were discussing earlier about them overwintering or not and what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, I think a tiny percent of the population can overwinter, but it's really small compared to the big thing, uh, the big population. And, and probably every single year when it comes up, it's probably even more um, resistant than before because, you know, there are a lot of crops down south. They have a long season. They use a lot of chemicals. Um, so it's pretty tough. We really um, have the worst of their problems arriving up here. Uh, Dennis, I noticed a couple of the questions that were submitted, they may have been submitted before we got to that, because some of them look like we discussed them a little bit, but maybe yeah. we'll, I just ask them again to see if Celeste or Laura have anything to add, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good idea. Um, there it is. So the question is, when can growers rely on pyrethroids for control, and when can they start to move into Corrigin, Prestige, and the other newer products? So I know we talked about that a little bit. Do you have anything uh, more to add, I guess, on that? I thought Celeste articulated that pretty well in terms of what does the pressure look like and the vulnerability of the crop. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but I mean, still, it would be nice if you had a number, but um, I guess, well, if I could diverge just a second. One thing I'm curious about, Laura, it's interesting that you guys do use the heart stack trap. I think heart stack traps are great. They're just really hard to get, and we have just like only two of them in Ohio, and most of our growers use the slightly smaller trap. And I was wondering if you, um, you know, because they're readily available, you can buy them from a number of different suppliers for about 50 or 60 bucks. Um, do, you, do you, for your thresholds that you use of one in 10, do you happen to have like a, a corresponding threshold for the, the smaller sentry trap? Because they generally do catch fewer moths than the heart stack style trap. No, That's like I the don't. white fabric collapsible one, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I've never, we've never done a side by side and, all of the traps we have are hard stack hmm. in our network. So, and I think the collaborating growers, we have a few growers who don't report to the network but have traps at their farms as well. I think those are also hard stacked. And so I did run into that Celeste. I recently had to buy some new ones to add to our network. And um, I found one person in Illinois who makes yeah. them. Right. And he did a great job and they're beautiful, but yeah, it, it, it took some time to track them down. Yeah, and like they have to ship them in a refrigerator box that costs like a lot of money. But anyway, so I guess, you know, I'm thinking even though our trap counts tend to be more um, the smaller, not the hard stack, but I'm thinking like even if you think of it as double digit versus single digit, if you're getting single or double digit catches, you know, then there's a good chance the pyrethroids would be okay. But once you get into the triple digit catches um, per week, once you're over 100 moths per week, I think you'd really be in the neighborhood of needing the, the more, the newer products. One of their, our participants, who I, I think is a crop consultant, mentioned um, in the chat that using something like Besiege, uh, you need to be careful when rotating between Corrigin and Pyrethroids, because I think Besiege right. is a mixture of Corrigin and Pyrethroids, so it wouldn't actually make it a true rotation, so... Yeah. True, but I don't know if rotation is really, we haven't really talked about the word rotation today, because usually when we talk rotation, we're talking between generations of a pest, and usually when we're talking about any field of silking corn, we're talking about a three-week period, and it's all one generation of the pest. Mm -hmm. So usually we're not really rotating products because of resistance management purposes, 
we're rotating them more because of limits on the amount you're allowed to use. Now, one good um, thought in that question is that somebody mentioned earlier, like if you're only allowed to use corrigin three times, uh, that doesn't mean just corrigin, it means or the active ingredient that's in corrigin. So mm. you can't use corrigin three times and besiege three times because then you'd be exceeding your limits. You know, it's one or the other. Uh, I mean, it gets a little trickier to, to do the math, but basically you can use, you know, either of them a total of three times, but you can't use both of them each three times. That, okay. Thanks. Sense? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, here's another question we got in the Q&A. An excellent consultant has consistently had challenges using traps to predict corn earworm infestation in ears. He has had low trap captures, but very high ear infestations. Um, uh, apparently, he's one of the few scouts in this, in this person's uh, region who rigorously samples ears for worms. Do you have any idea about why and when traps fail and how this can be avoided? I, I can think of a few little things. Um, one, well, first of all, I am curious if that is a heart stack or the sentry trap, but um, one little factor is if you can picture the, the big part of the trap, the cone has a bottom section and that lure is at the bottom of that bottom section. And it has been found in research that the exact placement of that lure is pretty important. It should be right at the bottom. Like if you picture like a plane um, across the bottom of the trap, it should be at that plane or one to two inches higher. It should hmm. not droop down below the trap. And one silly little thing in those the sentry traps, they come with a piece of elastic that immediately starts stretching and sacking. <laughs> it so totally usually when does. I buy a new sentry trap, the first thing I do is cut off that brand new elastic, throw it out, and uh, I replace it by a wire that is not going to bend at all. So, I mean, uh, that's one possibility. Um, you know, the only other thing is to, I wonder when you're cleaning the trap, make sure you're not using um, something on it that might have a repellent effect. Uh, you know, if it were a detergent or something that might have an odor. Also look if there's any little, like right where the cone part um, fits into the cylinder part, the very top. Make sure there's not like a little wire, some wires sticking out or, um, you know, somehow blocking the, the moth from getting up there. Um, and paying attention to the interval of when you're replacing the lures too. I think that sometimes that gets lost. And if you have an old lure out there, um, it, it's not gonna do as good of a job. Every time we replace the lure, we see a little bit of a spike when you have that new one out. So within, within a season of putting a lure out, how many weeks do you get? And then a secondary question is, if you buy a, a box of lures and you don't get through them all in one season, can you use them the next year? Part of that depends on the lure you buy, right? Because I know, for instance, there's two different packagings of the Helicovarphazia lure. The one we buy lasts two weeks. So it's a 10 pack. Every two weeks, you have to put a new one out um, in that trap. But they have another... Uh, not a formulation, but another system to develop that. And those lures, I think, are listed for five weeks. I don't know. Celeste, what do you use? No, I just use the two-week ones from Hercon. I can't remember if some of the other company might have a four-week lure. Um, but I would have met back for this particular question, I'm sure that consultant was doing it properly. But that is a really good point. That's very important that they – and then when you change the lure, don't just throw the old one on the ground – it's important, you know, pick it up and take it to a trash can so that you're not spreading that scent in different places. Mm. Um, the only other thing I wonder about, like the placement of the trap, usually we recommend placing it at the edge of the most um, 
attract, well, like early in the season, it's always near your first planting, whichever one is going to come into silt first. And then once that planting has been harvested, you can shift, keep, you know, if you have sequential plantings, just keep shifting the trap over so it's always close to the fresh soaking corn. That might make a difference. You know, if you just left it off in the spot where there's not fresh silk around, it might start catching less. Um, I just can't think of it. We've had a similar issue in a couple spots with corn borer, but I haven't really had that issue with corn earworm. Usually we find that traps do work pretty well. So the only thing I can think is get a really good detergent, make sure and rinse it really, really well so there's no uh, other repellent on it. Um, I don't know. They seem, they're usually a very reliable trap. We have another trap question, uh, which might lead into this. Do you have any thoughts on if the placement of earworm traps upwind or downwind of corn matters? The Laura, do you have anything? No, I was going to say we recommend putting it, you know, what is it, northwest corner. So the prevailing winds, if they're migrating, is the way they would move into the crop. So it's more in line with the way the winds are potentially moving them. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I tend to also tend to put them on the western edge. Um, but again, with this particular pest, I never worry about placement very much because it's such an effective lure. Whereas for European corn borer, it is different. They're a lot more finicky about flying into a trap. Like they like it to be over grass, um, not over bare ground, things like that. But with earworm, they're usually pretty um, cooperative about flying into that trap. Um, and again, maybe the with the edge of a field is important if it were... I did run into a grower once who wasn't getting much and he had it like right in the middle of his field. Um, but I think, you know, if the corn is getting too tall, it might somehow sort of bury the trap and just, you want that scent of the pheromone to be dispersing um, as much as you can. So typically the edge of a field makes sense. Okay. Um, here's another question related to entrust, um, which we had talked about before, but maybe there's some other ideas that um, you didn't get a chance to speak on before. And the question is simply, what's the best way to use and trust when growing organic sweet corn? Like spray it on the silks. <laughs> <laughs> spray it on the silks. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Uh, like I said, that one grower I've, I've been meeting with uses a backpack sprayer, uh, a, rather a backpack mist blower to, uh, to apply his and trust on his organic sweet corn. I think other sweet corn growers, more broad acre style sweet corn or conventionally planted in tight rows. Um, I've always been a proponent of drop nozzles um, if possible. So you can, you can target the silk more directly. And that would be something that would be useful for any grower, organic or not, for, for corn earworm, um, just to get your deposition right where it needs to be and not intercepted by all the leaves up above where the corn earworm's not really spending much of their time. So, and that would be no matter whatever, no, it doesn't matter what product it is either. If it's corn earworm you're going for, you need to hit the silk. And it doesn't matter what product you're using either. And trust or anything else, uh, the silk is where it needs to be. So doing whatever you can to get it right there and on that green, fresh silk would be, would be my best advice. It's hard to be prescriptive because each person knows their farm best and their equipment best. Um, I can't just tell you to go buy something when you might have something I don't know you have. But you just got to be creative with that end goal being silk contact. And we recommend, too, you can get those water-sensitive carts. Um, right. And Put those on your ears to see if you're getting the coverage you expect. That's great. Yeah, my colleague Ben Whirling did a trial a couple years ago with a with a sweet corn grower in his area, and they put those water sensitive cards um, a few rows deep. I don't remember exactly how far they went, and at three levels, 
and they found this really cool effect where the first few rows get really blasted. And then there's uh, like a stream that goes over a few rows and then it hits the top of cards much deeper in, but then misses the silk in this like this zone that's a few rows in and a few few rows back. And it seemed like air blast is a is a tricky tricky thing to tricky thing to manage. Really, we one other thing I could mention real quick um, because I think it, if somebody already has it, but you can no longer get it. There used to be a really nifty little device for organic growers called a zeolator applicator. It was this little handheld device for injecting a mix of BT and oil into the tip of each ear. So if you had a small enough planting, you didn't mind going back down the row and injecting it into each ear. But I, they've just, in the last year or two, they've just discontinued that product. You used to be able to get it through Johnny's Selected Seed. It was called Zia Later. But still the idea of BT, you know, if you had a small, in theory, BT works if you really get it on the silk and the tiny little larvae can eat it. But it, you know, it's, um, it's probably not as effective as just spraying interest. I can't imagine what it would feel like to finish up a field that with that applicator, your hands would be shot. Uh, next question, I believe we've answered it, but I will, I'll say just in case anything else pops out, is there an issue with using Besiege instead of Corrigin? It's a lot cheaper, so most growers are using it instead of Corrigin. I think I we've talked about the premix. Yeah. Well, again, if you can only use it, I can't remember, you know, depending on the rate, around three times. Um, I can't see any disadvantage. I believe it's the, uh, when you look at the percent and you look at the rates, it is equivalent to a full rate of Corrigin. It's not like a half a rate. So I can't see any um, issue with it. All right. Um, uh, here's a quick follow-up on the Entrust question that I saw just popped in at the bottom. So um, we'll just ask that since we're sort of on the topic still. Um, since you're limited on the number of Entrust applications and must use less effective products between Entrust applications, should you use the big guns, meaning Entrust, early or save it for later when pressures are higher? Well, I would say we did a lot, maybe not trials with Entrust, but we had that exact same question like when Corrigin first came out and the pyrethroids weren't looking so good. We went back and forth in different trials of you know where you place them. And it almost always came out, at least for late sweet corn, um, that you want the big guns up front you want the first two sprays are really important because that freshest silk is when the moths are most attracted in and will be laying the most eggs. Now, but having said that, there always could be an exception. And that's why it's really important to watch the traps during that three week silking period. Once in a while you have the situation, very, very low moth catch during as you're starting silk. And in the second week, then all of a sudden, like in the third week of silking, all of a sudden you get a huge flight, you know, then you might want to, save one of the big guns for late. Um, so even though we think traps are most important in starting you know, any given planting and what your program is gonna be, you have to also pay attention so you might wanna shift during that three week soaking period. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, our final question of the Q&A, um, this one's a little different. Do you have any ideas about the control of sap beetles in corn? One grower has had issues even after spraying pyrethroids. Either one of you want to take a stab at that? I know I've heard the same thing, that I think it's not a resistant. They've just, for some reason, pyrethroids have never done a good job with the sap beetles, and they are starting to be more of a problem. Um, but I can't think about, somehow I'm thinking maybe lanate might work, um, but I really can't remember offhand. Laura, do you know? No, I was going to say, I don't have any experience with that, but I did notice that harvesting my first round this year, that there were a lot of them in the tip. 
I mean, well, the key thing about the sap beetles, we historically, we thought of them more as secondary, like a worm would come in and then after the worm made the hole, then those sap beetles would get in the same hole. Yeah, but birds too. Yeah, and bird, but well, you know, still even with the birds, the worms often start everything. But there has been recent evidence, and I have seen this occasionally, that when there's no sign of any other insect, no worm, no insect, no bird, and yet you have sap beetles. So it does seem like they, they do have the ability to be a primary invader, not just a secondary. Celeste, I think you had said earlier that disease is something that works well on beetles. Yeah. Um, that are feeding on oh, the silks. Yeah. Are you but talking not, Japanese beetles there? Right. Japanese beetle and rootworm beetles, like the western yeah. corn rootworm beetle, the, the other rootworm beetles, but not sap beetles. Okay, interesting. Sap beetles um, are different. Um, I know Dennis said that was the last question. We, we had one other one that we had prepared and we didn't feel like we had time for it, but we, maybe we can sneak it in now. And, and that was just on um, about any invasive or new pests that we should be aware of in, in sweet corn. Do you have anything? Oh. The one I've been working on the last few years, um, in areas where the brown marmorated stink bug has moved in, it loves sweet corn. And it really does a huge amount of damage in sweet corn. So we've been, been looking at that, trying to figure out how to manage it. We don't have the answers yet, but, um, but it's definitely a problem in sweet corn. Okay. I don't oh, have anything to add to that one. Our Q&A is like lighting, lighting up like up. a cr Christmas tree <laughs> this time. Um, so. You, there's another follow-up to the sap beetle question, and they were wondering if a sale, which the active ingredient of acetamiprid, um, could work. It's labeled for corn. That's a really good question. I don't know the answer. Okay. Also, in our veg guide, we should make sure, Ben, uh, if we check this up, check check this out after this today. Um, we we need to add them in there. Yeah, add something in the uh, in the veg guide if we can find a product. It almost seems like. It, you wouldn't really be treating for, I don't think it would make sense for a special pass just for sap beetles. So whatever, for, so for whatever is used, it would be tank mixed with whatever you're using to use uh, to control caterpillars, because it doesn't seem like anything that controls caterpillars controls the beetles. So it'd be a tank mix of some sort, I would think that'd be more cost effective for trips. Great question, guys. You stumped, you stumped our guests right at the end. Okay. Well, uh, that wraps it up for us. Um, so once again, next week, we're talking about post-harvest uh, sanitation of equipment. And, um, oh, and we had some people on the phone. It looks like they left, so I'll just skip the whole part about, um, oh, we have one person on the phone. If, they, if, they had a, if, you have a, if you're on the phone and you have a question, you can push star nine right now, and uh, I can unmute you and you can ask that question. Um, I'll keep an eye out for that, and I'll just con continue with the outro here. So, um, yeah, cleaning and post-harvest equipment. Uh, Equipment next week, same place, same time, 12.30 Eastern, 11.30 Central. And um, I hope to see you then. Okay, you have a good rest of the week, everybody. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone.